Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to continue our study of the book of uh, Numbers, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on chapter 16, and then move on to chapter 17. Again, let's um, recall the context. Israel left Egypt, and we saw the Exodus, well, in the book of Exodus, and they reached Mount Sion, where Moses went up the mountain, were given, was given the law. And the golden calf took place. And then after that, there is a very lengthy and detailed description of the tabernacle, which then the Israelites built. In Numbers, we see them then leaving or preparing first to leave Mount Sion. There is a very clear explanation of who is going to carry the tabernacle, and it's the Levites. And we see how the tribes were... um, placed around the tabernacle in very specific ways. And after all this description, the actual departure begins. So the intent was for them to leave Mount Sion and go to the promised land and do that very quickly. It was a matter of weeks. When they approached the Holy Land, they decided to send scouts, and they sent 12 scouts who came back with a very bad report. And that is, we can't conquer the land. We cannot take it over. The people who live there are too strong for us. Only two dissented, Joshua and Caleb. The others gave this negative report, and the people followed them and complained. And essentially accused Moses to have brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the desert. At which point, God's wrath flared and told them, because you did not trust in me, because you did not believe my word, this generation will die in a desert. And there will be no burial for you. So that was the end of chapter 15. So, today we're going to look again at what happens in chapter 16, which is a set of instructions, laws, that God gives them concerning the way they will worship. And then we'll move back to, um, we'll go back to the narrative in chapter 17. So, There are ten points we're going to go through tonight. First, we're going to talk about what must accompany a sacrifice. Then we're going to talk about the the priestly emolument, what the priest has to do. Then we're going to talk again about the inadvertent brazen wrongdoing, and then the case of the wood gatherer. And these four points are in chapter 16. In chapter 17... We'll talk about the leaders of the rebellion, because it's really about a rebellion. 
the incense test for holiness, Moses' rebuke, uh, uh, rebuke for the Levites, the um, defiance, the, the people who defied Moses, the incense test at the tent of meeting, and the punishment of the rebels. That's essentially what we're going to be covering. And there is, there is a thread that unites both chapters, and that is the liturgy. Because the, you will see that the rebellion focuses on the role of Moses and Aaron as priests. So it is all centered around the liturgy, the worship of God. And there is a reason why it is structured this way, because typically what happens is that people in their rebellion begin with the most obvious things, which are their comfort, the physical life. That's where rebellion usually begins. Likewise, that's where sanctity usually begins, in the ordered life. So on both sides, you have the, the, we cannot discount the importance of the way we live. If we are not careful in our interaction with the material world, if, if we are not constantly asking ourselves questions about what we purchase and the money we're willing to spend on certain things versus others, if that is not part of our consciousness, if our consciousness has been so dulled that we are willing to spend on, on anything without really giving it a proper thought, um, then we are effectively, implicitly, if not explicitly, in a state of rebellion. Um, rebellion, in, a very, in, a, in, in its most simple, that is, um, essential form, is the notion that I can do something without God. That's what rebellion is. The notion that I can do something, I can change the world, I can affect a change on anything without God's involvement, is rebellion. And from that angle, you see that we are all rebellious. It is part of the effect of original sin to cause us to be rebellious. How many, and I've given you this example multiple times, and especially for you women, it's a very important example. I'm not giving this one lightly. How many of us are conscious of God's presence when we brush our hair? How many of us are aware that the fact that I can actually move my arms, lift up the brush, and perform this very simple function is due to God. Uh, hair for women is a great source of vanity. It's also a great way of praising God. Again, both ways. If women are not giving it proper thought, if they don't think about their hair in relationship to God, right, implicitly it is a form of rebellion. They're not necessarily responsible for it. They're not doing it on purpose. They're not being mean. It is just the fruit of original sin. You understand? And therefore, the only way to counteract this is a very active prayer life. Because through prayer, especially the reception of the Eucharist and prayer before the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Spirit begins to permeate our mind and our soul, 
and we become more and more habitually aware of His presence down to the minutest detail. And when we reach that point, we fulfill the words of St. Paul, pray always. That's what is meant by pray always. Not that you have to say verbal prayers all the time. Not that you have to say 15 rosaries a day. Pray always means that you are aware of God's presence for every single action. And in summary, this is the way of St. Therese of Lisieux, by the way. This is the little way. Just be aware of God's presence. And that takes hard work because it's against our fallen, rebellious nature. Make sense? So I'm not saying this to beat you on the head. I'm not trying to put you down or demoralize you. I'm just stating a fact. If you go to see a doctor and you've broken your leg, you don't want the doctor to tell you, oh, you're fine, just go play basketball. You want him to acknowledge the fact. You want a right diagnosis. Because if you don't get a right diagnosis, there is no way you're going to be able to heal. Well, the right diagnosis is to start by recognizing we are sinners, as the liturgy does. I confess to God and to my brothers and sisters that I have sinned. And if you go to Mass every day, you have to say that prayer pretty much every time, either explicitly or let's recall our sins. Lord, have mercy. Right? That is a fact of our lives. And in the book of Numbers, it is now more and more clear. So what happens when you leave this unchecked? What happens when you do not control your relationship to the material world? Material possessions. Food. Obviously, food is a big one. There's no thought put into what you're eating, how much you should be eating, how fast you're eating. Again, food will possess you. The tongue. So when these material um, objects that attract us are not kept in check, then the next step is that we fall in bad habits. What is another way of saying bad habit? One word. Vice, thank you. We fall in vice. We become vicious. Whereas originally, we are simply, not, we, we are living the effect of original sin. That rebelliousness in us comes from original sin. Now, that's a passive thing. Now we move into active rebellion because of our vices. So we take bad habits. These habits become vices. The third stage is, is when we no longer think of them as vices. When we excuse them, when we justify them, when we explain them away, and when we become very comfortable with them. That is the flowering of sin. When we're now very comfortable with them, it becomes the flowering of sin. And we cannot allow ourselves, therefore, to leave the material things controlling us because the effect is what I just described. And that's what you see in the book of Numbers. The rebellion started with what? What was the thing that they were complaining about? Food, meat. They were not hungry. God was feeding them. Ah, there's difference. God was not starving them. They were receiving all the nutrients they needed. It wasn't about being hungry. It's about satisfying their taste for food. They wanted meat first. Then they wanted fish. Then they wanted the lentils and the onions and all the things they were able to get in Egypt. Right? 
Now, in and of itself, you know, wanting to eat fish and meat and onion, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you are attached to them against God's will, because God is leading them to the promised land, and we said it's a question of weeks. If they can't even wait weeks to fill their stomach with what they like, when they are in the presence of the Lord, what does that say? You see? If we can't fast 40 days and do a real fast for 40 days in the presence of the Lord, what does that say? Sure. Okay, so the question is, was it only the way in which they asked that caused the rebellion? It isn't so much the tone, obviously the tone matters, but it is the response to the response. So you, you go to God and you say, you, I, we go to God and we say nicely, I'm weak, please give me meat to eat because I, I just, what I, that's what I need. If God says no, how will you react? That was the key. Okay, so that you're not rebellious. You've expressed your need before the Lord. He said no, you accepted it. That is what he expects of us. Right? But that's not what they were doing. Number one, they didn't even go to the Lord. Number two, they came to the conclusion that they, they had to have what they wanted. And number three, number three they, they rebelled. Very different attitude. You know? So the softening of the heart, this is when we speak of the softening of the heart, this is what the Eucharist does. What prayers does. It softens your heart to accept God's will. Right? So that's a very good question. Now, they started with that. And when they reached the Holy Land, despite all of this, they reached the Holy Land, right? They reached the border, and they sent these guys in. They came back with a report saying, we cannot overtake them. Why, why did they say, we cannot overtake them? There are really two reasons. Number one, lack of faith in God. That's obvious. But there's another reason. They lacked fortitude. The virtue of fortitude is one of the cardinal virtues that allows us to perform difficult things for the glory of God. They lacked fortitude. Why did they lack fortitude? Material comfort. Material comfort. You become too comfortable, there's no way you're going to grow in fortitude. You understand? The flip side, therefore, if God loves you, He will make your life... Uh-uh. Un... No, 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 no. Neither terrible nor difficult. Oh, bearable. Okay, that's better. Thanks. I thought I heard terrible. He will make your life uncomfortable. Do you understand why you need your life to be uncomfortable? If you don't, you haven't yet accepted that you're rebellious. Because you will see it as an injustice. How could you make my life uncomfortable? I don't deserve it. It's not about deserving it. It's about turning you into a child of God. It's about making you a saint. And if he doesn't pull you out of that comfort zone you're living in, You'll never grow in fortitude. And if you don't have fortitude, when the time comes for you to do something difficult, you'll say, I'm going back to Egypt. One baby today would not be you know, the right thing to do. So I'm going back to, I don't know, Hawaii or something. Right? I mean, you get the, my, the sense. That's why what happened. They lacked that fortitude. Now we're going to see what the next step is. They're going to take it to the next level. Yes. You could ask that question, can I be comfortable and also be with love with God? You could ask the question yourself, to yourself. If you have no need to grow in the virtues, if you, some people are absolutely directed to God. They just grow in virtue on their own. They don't need anything to push them. St. John of the Cross is a perfect example. Right? He reached 
perfect union with God. And he had tough time, but most of it he did on his own. St. Therese of Lisieux is another good example. There are people who are like that. Unfortunately, most of us are not like that. We like our comfort. So therefore, we overlook our weaknesses. And because we overlook our weaknesses, we let them sit. And when they sit, they eat away our faith. You see, it's interesting that you put the question this way. Let me turn it around and say, you have a son who comes to you and says, Dad, okay, I'm gonna, I want to become a doctor, but I want a comfortable life. I don't want to study too hard. What do you think? Would you be proud of him saying that? He's trying to find a school that allows him to become a doctor, but not study too hard. You know, they have to do this internal residency thing where they sleep five hours or something and turn into zombies. I'm not going to do that. I don't need to do that. I need my sleep. I want to be comfortable. Do you see? Even in, even in our lives, put it this way. Your son comes to you and says, I want to have my company. I want to become rich. But I'll work two hours a day. Would you? All right. Now, then ask yourself a very simple question. What is easier, becoming rich or entering the kingdom of God? Well, yeah. But, but, but I don't mean you're, you're dying of hunger. I don't mean you're, uh, you're, um, you're in pain all day long. I mean you have frustrations. I mean things don't always go the way you want. I mean you don't always, things don't line up exactly the, the way you want them to. And you have things you have to take care of. All, you have worries. You have things you have to work on. That's what I mean. All these are gifts of God to you and me. We see them as a burden. They're his gift so that we can improve. Do you understand what I'm trying to say now? I'm not saying somebody's behind you holding a stick and beating you up day and night. I'm simply saying you're going to be uncomfortable. Your life is not perfect. It's not exactly the way you want it to be. There'll always be things that are going to bother you because you have to work on those areas of your life where you need to improve. Make sense? Is that, does this make sense? Yeah? Okay. Yes. And I think this is a very important point you make. Thank you for making it. The point is this. He makes us uncomfortable precisely so that we can understand that in all these things, we're not going to find joy. Our joy is in Him. The whole idea is that He's going to take that comfort away from us to give us a much greater comfort in Him. That's the peace of God. That's a very important element. And yes, we have to do everything we need to do, but always keeping our gaze focused on Him. That's essentially the fundamental, that we have to follow all our lives. We must be focused on Him. And that's the hard part for all of us. Right? And you, you see it here in this, um, in this chapter. So, let's go through this now. In The one thing I want to point out to you in chapter 15 is the importance of the sacrifice. So, the Lord now is tell, telling them, when you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I give you, so the message now is not to the generation that is going to die in, in the desert. The message is to the next generation. And notice, so often, many of the encyclicals written by the Holy Fathers are typically not for the immediate generation, but for the generations to come, who will f- find the meaning of them much more significant to their lives than those who were living when the encyclical was written. And you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock an offering by fire or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feasts to make a pleasing order to the Lord. By the way, pleasing order, incense. Okay, so it's, it's liturgical. Right? And God is not interested in having a pleasing order. God does not have a nose. 
but he goes by what the people can do to express their love for him. Right? When you do these things, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a cereal offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a fourth of a hen of oil. So an ephah is about 35 liters, 77 pounds, about. And a hen is about 7 liters of, uh, uh, yeah, the, yeah, 7 liters of, of oil. So those are significant measures for them. And wine for the drink offering, a fourth of a hen, you shall prepare with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. So God, in a sense, is asking for the best. So when you make an offering to the Lord, do not make a half offering. So the burnt animals are effectively your sacrifice. And the flour and the wine and the, the, the oil represent your compunction, your sorrow. So you can't make an offering if you're not sorrowful. And sorrowful doesn't mean you have feelings. It doesn't mean you're crying. It means that had, could you now do things differently when you did them, you would. You have the firm resolution of doing things differently now. That's your sorrow. It's not a question of feeling. His feelings come and go. It's a question of the will. All right. So that's the one key thing to understand. Now, why is he saying this to them right now? Observe, the older generation had rebelled against him and they were punished to die in the wilderness. He's, and this chapter instructs the next generation in the way they should behave when they offer sacrifice. Isn't that incongruous? I mean, isn't that kind of surprising? Why is that subject being brought up now? And the reason why it's brought up now is because the only thing that will prevent you and I from rebelling, the only thing that will cure our rebellion is the liturgy. The way we celebrate the liturgy is the way in which we are healed from our vices. So the more we celebrate the liturgy with love, the more we take it seriously, the more we participate, and the more we, we give God the glory, then He in return fill, 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 fill us with every good and give us the strength to overcome our sins. So He's not saying these things to them because, you know, He's God and He's really important and He just wants people to know that He's important for His own sake. That's not what He's doing. He's giving them the antidote necessary for them not to repeat the sins of their parents. Okay, Look in every country. I don't care which country you pick. Pick any country you want. You can, with, with, with certain, now I don't have the facts, but I only have anecdotal facts, but I am fairly certain that you can correlate the moral degradation of Catholics with the way they celebrate Mass. There is an absolute correlation between the two. When they don't celebrate it with love, when they don't take Mass seriously, when they don't pour their hearts and minds and soul into the liturgy to give glory to God, when they don't study to understand why we celebrate the liturgy, what is the point of the liturgy, when they don't love the church, God's graces cease to flow in their hearts and their hearts are hardened and at which point you see a degradation in the moral life. And I think you've heard me say many, many times, the way to solve our problems outside 
meaning outside the church, is not by going after the symptoms. You're not going to stop contraception. You're not going to stop abortion. You're going to stop the uh, pornography, alcoholism, drug, the breaking of the family by enacting social programs alone, by having more social workers, by having a different teaching program. You're not going to solve any of those things because they are the syndrome of the real problem, which is spiritual. You need to heal man in his soul for his actions to become moral. And when his actions are moral, all these problems go away. And the only way we can do that is the liturgy. There is no other way. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. He repeated it four times. It's about time that we Catholics wake up and understand our duty. Our first duty is worship. It's the Mass. Above all else, that is very important. If you're thinking about your community, you're thinking about your family, you're thinking about your church, you're thinking about the future of the world, the answer is the Mass. You need to be convicted of that first. And that is not something you can do on your own. You have to ask God to open your mind and show you the beauty of the church. Yeah? Okay. So, my point was that in this chapter, he gives them these directions precisely because he wants them to understand that unless they are a holy nation, and there is no holiness apart from the liturgy, they will not be able to live morally. They can't live an upright life. So it gives them these rules that they must follow. In these cases, those rules don't give life. The rules in chapter 15 do not have in them sacramental power. They're there for training. And they're there for our education. You understand? All right. Now, that's what I wanted to say, bring to your attention in chapter 15. The rest already discussed in the last... Um, the, the prior um, study. Let's move on to chapter 16. In chapter 16, the people are now taking stock of what happens to them. They've been denied entrance into the Holy Land. They're going to die in the desert. They will not be buried. So, there is a rebellion. In fact, it's not one rebellion. It is four rebellions, back to back. And um, now, this chapter is known as the um, Korahite Rebellion, because of Korah. One thing I forgot to tell you also is that um, the rebellion usually starts oftentimes in the physical realm, and mostly the lay folks are involved in it. And then it seeps in, and then the priesthood is infected. And you can see it here, where now the rebellion has moved among the Levites. Not the priests, but the Levites. So all these who, all the all those who are connected with the tabernacle. So Korah, who is a Levite, allies himself with Dathan and Abiram, who are sons of Reuben. Now, if you remember from the line of Jacob, Reuben is the firstborn. So what is going on here? We have priesthood aligning itself with political power. 
We never see that, right? It never happens. And I'm saying this so that you may not be scandalized or surprised when these things happen. They're in Scripture for our for edification. And they come to Moses and basically tell him, you've gone too far. It's enough. We're not going to follow you anymore. So demoralized by the majority report of the scouts and condemned by their God to die in the wilderness, the people are psychologically receptive to demagogic appeals to overthrow their leadership and return to Egypt. Forget God, forget Moses, we're going to do it ourselves. Never mind that they tried that by going and fighting in the, in the in Holy Land when he told them, I'm not going to be with you. They continue on their path. So you see how that path continues um, when you start with a simple no to God, it becomes something much worse later. So, it is important, therefore, for us, when we are educating our children, especially the men, I'm talking to the men here, when you're educating your children, you have to keep reminding yourselves, I am not educating a little cute boy. I am educating a soul for Christ. Therefore, when your son, when he's little, shows rebellion, what do you do? You teach him the pain that comes from rebellion. So he understands it's not free. So in, in my household, when my little ones would tell me no, with that rebellious no, I would simply say, what did you say? And if they said no to me three times, I take their hands and I slap them on the hands. And I'll ask a question again. Was it that you said? And I'll repeat it two or three times until they're crying. And I'll send them to their room to think about it. Because I know how dangerous the snow can be. Now, you can do it without slapping the hand if you want. There are other ways. You're welcome to it. I always have my pet peeve with people who believe they shouldn't be spanking anybody. And I always ask them this very simple question. All right, if you want to express love to a child, what do you do? Do you sit the child in front of you and explain to him and tell him that you... Do you speak your love to the child? Is that what you do? And most everybody says, no, I hug him. Why? Why don't you talk to the child? Why do you... Why the physical contact? Because we all know that we learn through our body. So a kid will connect. Ouch, that is painful... Let me think twice before doing it again. Very important to form our children so that they are not rebellious when they are teenagers. Speaking of teenagers, I told you this before, rebellious teenagers, teenagers who will not listen to you, is a curse. And most often than not due to contraception. People who have children who did not contracept typically end up with kids who are not rebellious. They respect their parents they honor them, and they listen to their voice. They don't necessarily agree with them, but they respect them. It's a gift. I don't, I don't deserve respect as a father. I don't own it. It's not something that, I, that is my right. You understand? It is a gift. It's one of those gifts of the Holy Spirit. For me and my kids, and maybe even more my kids than I. Because I don't get paid when they respect me. I get nothing out of it, personally, right? It is for them, because if they respect me, guess what? They'll have devotion to God. 
especially God the Father. And their encounter with God the Father would be a lot easier. So many people are hampered from relating to God the Father because they can't stand their natural father. So men, your role in the family is huge. Huge. So, four separate rebellious happen here. The Levites against Aaron, Dathan and Abiram against Moses, the tribal chieftains against Aaron, the entire community against Moses and Aaron. They took presumably multiple incidents that happened over a span of years. Because remember, I told you when we started studying the book of Numbers that most of the chapters in Numbers are centered around the departure and the time before entering. And the center is about maybe, and, and so basically 39 years are condensed in about 10 chapters. So presumably they took multiple incidents of rebellion and condensed them together to impress us what happens when we rebel. So it's like a, almost like a gallery, if you will. You're visiting different tableau of rebellion in this chapter, right? One after the other. So the first one is the leader, Korah, son of uh, Izar, son of Kohath. Now, what is important with him is that Kohath is the second son of Levi, but he became the one who is prominent because of Amram, his son, who happens to be the father of Moses and Aaron. So the line through Levi didn't go to the first one, Gershon, who is the older son. And we've talked enough about the role of the firstborn. And typically... It isn't the firstborn that get the double blessing. In this case, it is Kohath, through him, Amram, and then Aaron and Moses. Now, what is interesting, if you look at Kohath, Amram is his firstborn. Izar is his second. Amram had Moses and Aaron. Moses became a prophet. Aaron became the high priest. Who is the firstborn of Izar? Korah. So the thinking is, Okay, this guy is a pro- prophet. The other guy is the high priest. Who's going to be the boss here? Managing the affairs of the whole tribe and the money and the lay stuff. Well, the next one in, in line. It's me. You get it? He's basically saying, all right, I'm the, I'm the boss here. You guys are the priest and the prophet. Get out of the way. I have to take care of the people. And so I'm telling, to, I'm telling both of you, it's, that's it. It's enough. We're going to go back to Egypt. So where is the most stinging rebellion coming from? From the family. Okay? From the family. So uh, then you have Dathan and Abiram, as I told you, the descendant of Reuben, the firstborn. How do they feel about this whole thing? Okay. This enough is enough. These guys, Moses and Aaron, really messed it up for all of us. It's about time we assert the primacy of Reuben, he's the firstborn of Jacob, forget all that stuff, we're going to be the guys, we're, right? So they had a meeting, and they brought about 250 of them, chieftains, who agreed with them. Now what are they agreeing on? What are they agreeing on? They're agreeing that, they're not basically saying, Moses and, 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 and uh, Aaron, you're priests, but you know, you messed up, let, let us lay folk take care of all of it. No, that's not what they're saying. What they're basically saying is, all the community is holy. That's what they're telling Moses and Aaron. Now, 
You need to understand this, that back then, today, it is something we say all the time. But back then, only the priesthood was holy. Because only the priests could enter the tabernacle. So what are those guys asserting now? All the community is holy. Not only you, everybody. Have you heard this today? Do you hear this kind of a attitude? Right? Yeah. Nothing is new, huh? Alright? And what they do, interestingly enough, is that they're taking the words of Moses and twisting them. Because if you recall, when Moses complained to God that the weight was too heavy for him, God said, alright, appoint 70 elders and I'll take some of the Spirit, put them on you. And then Caleb came running to him and says, hey, there are these two guys in the camp, they're also prophesying. What did Moses say? What to God? Everybody prophesied. Oh, well, that means everybody's holy. They're taking his own words, twisting them, and then returning them against him. Hmm? So Korah is making the following argument. In chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, God told them to wear on their hair essentially something that represents a priestly garment. So he's making the argument. If God is saying to all of us to wear something like a priestly garment... It implies that we are all priests. Since we are all priests, we're all holy. Yeah? Therefore, why should they not be eligible for the priesthood itself? By implication, if everybody is eligible to the priesthood, where is the authority of Aaron and Moses? Gone. Right? Okay. That's very important. I want you to realize this because this is exactly the same attack that was mounted against the church in the United States. And it's still ongoing. Right? So in the Latin rite, who, what do you call people who help the priest distribute communion? You, yeah, but Eucharistic minister is the word that has been propagated. Right? The Vatican explicitly told everyone not to use these words. Why? Who is the Eucharistic minister? The priest. That's why these people want to use those words. Because we're all priests. The actual technical term, which is a mouthful, is extraordinary ministers of holy communion. Holy communion. That's what... And, and you know, everybody gets confused. What, what is that? But that's what they are. Okay? Why do you think they wanted that push to have all the ladies standing on the altar? Because once you get used to have ladies standing on the altar, you'll get used to have ladies standing behind the altar. You'll get used to have somebody else and the priest saying Mass. Do you understand? Right? Why do they want to give you communion both, in both um, species when in fact you only have to receive one? It's the same push. The same idea. They want to bring the priest to the same level of the lady. And the lady fall for it because when the priest raises his hand, now the lay folks are doing priestly gestures. Right? The Lord is with you. What do they do? They raise their hands in priestly supplication. This is a gesture reserved to the priest. They do it. It takes because in us there is this rebellion that says, why should there be only one priest? I want to be priest too. Exactly the same situation here. Okay? Well, let's see what happens. 
Now, Moses fell on his face, meaning he went into the tent and interceded before God on his face, so that God would answer him. And then he says, all right, you want to be priests? Fine, bring your censers and come before the tent and let's see what happens. You see, it's liturgical. Why is the fight liturgical? Why is there a fight to control the liturgy? Because the liturgy forms morality. You understand? The source of morality is the liturgy. If I can control the liturgy, I can control morality. I control everything. That's why the fight for the liturgy is so important. So, they bring their censers. And Moses says, do this. Why? Offers incense. Why is he choosing offering incense? Where do you usually offer incense? Where? In the altar, where? In the holy. Yeah? In the holy of holies. You have to be before the, um, the altar of incense to be able to... Who can enter there? Only the priests. So he says, you're the priest? Fine. Bring your censers. And then he tells them, light them with a fire. That's very interesting. Why? Because the only fire that you're supposed to light the incense with comes from the fire on the altar of incense, the perpetual fire lit by the Shekinah, the presence of God. He tells them, light, your, light the, the fire in your incense. Does that bring some memory about some folks who used the wrong fire? The two, the two sons of Aaron and God smote them? Okay. They do it. You see, hardness of heart brings about spiritual blindness. They do it. Before we get into the punishment, the Levites are going after Aaron. They're going after the priesthood. When Moses is attacked, he says nothing. But when Aaron is attacked, he springs to his defense. Why? It isn't because Aaron is perfect or holy. We've seen it before. He's not. Right? But it is the institution of the high priest that Moses is defending. It is the liturgy. And therefore he defends it because of the high priesthood. Effectively, what Korah wanted to become is the high priest. He wanted to take on that role so that he can decide what to do and bring everybody back to Egypt. Then you have the two sons of Reuben Moses tells them to come before the tent. They say, we will not come. We'll not even show up. That's complete rebellion now. Right? We will no longer obey your orders. That's it. Now, it's full-fledged, open rebellion. And what they're basically saying to him is, here's, here's their, um, the statement they make. Verse 12. We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. They take the words of the Lord and they reapply it to Egypt. Right? To kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us. Talk about a zinger. What was Moses in Egypt? He was a prince. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyard. Will you put out the eyes of these men? Now that is an expression, really, to gouge someone's eyes is to effectively uh, hoodwink them. It doesn't mean physically gouging somebody's eyes. 
this expression to say to put wool on somebody's eyes, right? To cover someone, to to make them buy into an illusion. That's what they're saying. Right? So notice the charges, and they're not charges directed against Moses; they're directed against God. Okay. All right. So then, what happens exactly? So Moses, verse 26, And he said to the congregation, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they, meaning the congregation, got away from about the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they are visited by the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. Meaning, if these, guy, these men are cared for like everybody else, and they die of old age, then God has not sent me. Okay? But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth, really what he says isn't really create something new. I'll tell you in a minute. This is kind of really important, but let's just keep on reading. And the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol. So here, you don't have a case of um, assumption. You have the opposite case. I don't know what that would be. I need to look up the antonym of assumption. Right? It's bodily descent into hell. And as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split asunder, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men that belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So the new thing isn't that an earthquake happened, because people were familiar with earthquakes, but, but it's the fact that the earth closed back. So you can see right here that there is degrees of punishment in hell, just as there are degrees of glory in heaven. Because the men who took the incense and stood before the, 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 the holy uh, tabernacle were killed by fire. Fire came out from the tabernacle and killed all of them. But these ones went down to hell alive indicating a much greater degree of suffering for them, their wives, and their children. There is another area of rebellion for us, the corporate nature of our faith. We would be much happier if it was only Jesus and me. If whatever I did, if whatever I did just implied me and Jesus, and no one else, it would be a lot easier and be much simpler Unfortunately, or in terms of graces, happily, it isn't so. It isn't so. When, back to what you were saying earlier, when somebody, when a man enters uh, the church and receives the communion unworthily, he is not only causing uh, a curse to descend upon himself, but it is upon his wife and his children. Because God gave them to him. And God respects our free will. If he did not respect our free will, we would be puppets. And there is no respect of free will without consequence now, is there? There isn't. Otherwise, it's a joke. If there is no real consequence, one way or the other, 
It's a joke. But God is not leaving us alone. That's the tragedy. The real tragedy isn't that, oh, what I do, do can cause harm to others. That would be tragedy if God did not give us all the necessary means, not only not to cause harms to others, but actually to bless them. So effectively what God did is said, all right, I'm going to give you free will, but guess what? I'm going to take you and put you in a place called my church where if you just follow and obey, right? not only will I make it hard for you to cause harm to anyone, I'll cause so many to be blessed through you, though you're a sinner. Do you understand? So if you think about what I just said, apart from God, it looks like grave injustice. Put it this way. You take a kid, you bring him to a house, and you put him in this house, and this kid, if you were to go to the kitchen and open up the fridge randomly and pick up stuff and put them in a bowl and throw the content of the bowl into the oven, it will come back, it will come out like a good cake. No matter where he goes, there is nothing that he can touch that will hurt him. So then the kid takes a jackhammer and makes a hole in the wall and he touches electricity. He gets in contact with electricity and he dies. That's what we're talking about here. God gives us a safe environment to be in because he says, Behold, I am with you until the consummation of time. You have God Almighty with you in your soul Every Sunday, what are you afraid of? The only thing you will fear is yourself. Do you understand? There's no injustice here. There's a great love. But if, despite all this, we persist and we choose to rebel, He will respect our free will and our consequences for us and others who are in our church. Do you understand? Yeah. That is really key for us to understand about this rebellion. When people rebel, there are consequences. England rebelled against the church. If you study the history of England, you get to that point under Henry VIII, where he wanted... How did it start? He was married to one woman he didn't like. He decided to divorce her first. He went to the Pope and said, I'm the king of England, I want a divorce. He's a Catholic, remember that. The Pope said, there is no divorce. So the king said, okay, that's okay, I'm the Pope now. The king of England is the head of the Anglican Church. He's the Pope. right? I'm the Pope now. He kills his wife and marries another. What do the bishops... The Catholic bishops, what do they do? They defect. Wholesale defection on the part of the bishops. The great majority of them, they come and they bow before the king and they accept his rule. Why? Because they like their comfort. And the shining exception is St. Thomas More. If you have not seen... A man of all seasons. I strongly encourage you to watch this movie. A man of all seasons. St. Thomas More. St. Thomas More, who was a married man, who was the um, 
effectively the prime minister, the closest man to the king, great position of power, he remained faithful to the end. In fact, when he was to be beheaded, when he was about to be beheaded, he said to the, uh, to the executioner, my good man, I forgive you. Don't fret. I've forgiven you. But please do your job well. I'd like to appear before the Lord with a clean cut. Yeah. Wonderful saint. Okay. What happened after England rebelled? Did they fall into poverty? Did they, um, were, they taken, were all the riches taken away from them? What happened to England? Hmm? Yes, they prospered, didn't they? They prospered. They became powerful. They became a huge empire. They became the first empire in the world. They had colonies all over the place. They made money. So what is that? Why is it a wrath? Exactly. They were comfortable. There's no reason to change their faith. What does that mean? They're outside the church. Get it? Them, because of what Henry VIII did, and these bishops, them, and their children, and their children's children, down 400 years, were denied heaven. Yes. Right. His sons died. The, 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 the point that was made is that he never had a son who reigned after him. It was his daughters who succeeded him. Yeah. But do you see that? Germany. What happened to Germany? Germany became Protestant. Right? They prospered, didn't they? Yeah. Don't misunderstand God's signs. If you make your life uncomfortable, He loves you. He's protecting you from yourself. He's helping you to grow in your faith. If you rely on Him. If you say, Lord, I trust you. Jesus, I trust in you. That's the general rule that we have to keep in mind. Now, in some cases, he, you have people who are holy and have a comfortable life. That's fine. I'm just saying the general rule, oftentimes, it's a sign of His love for you if you're struggling in your faith. Because you're growing. Yeah? All right. There's one more thing I wanted to say, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. You know, it says that these men came out with their children and their wives. Something really interesting about that, because for a curse to be effective, you have to see the people who are going to be cursed. That's what the indication was, that they had to come out. There is a physical contact that has to happen. Right? for that to actually take place. Likewise, if you want to bless, you need to see the person you want to bless. And you know where that shows up, where that principle shows up today in modern life? There has been a tendency for some people to create a, a hotline where you can call for confessions. Why can't you confess over the phone? Exactly. Grace and curses flow face to face, right? The body has a very important role to play in our faith. We're not just spirits. We worship with our body. We bless with our body. We curse with our body. We pray with our body. Okay? That's why we have to respect our bodies. And that's why we have to understand that they are the Lord's. And we must cover them appropriately. And be dressed modestly. And understand what dress code we must have. In the sight of God. And I would um, suggest to you women 
to pray because more often than not, in these 15 years, 14 years, I don't remember now that I've been doing this Bible study, I can say that generally speaking, there is a blindness that has come upon women. They do not see clothing the way they should see it. They are oblivious. Absolutely oblivious to the way they're dressed and the impact of their dress code and how they are themselves collecting punishment on their heads because of all the thoughts that they cause men to think. And most of them are unaware of this. They can't even see it. So it takes... I've come to recognize it is a true grace of God. He doesn't give it to everyone. I don't know why. I don't know why, but it is a grace of God to open someone's eyes and see how one must be dressed. And I know some people who receive this grace. I mean, there is one person in particular I can think of who um, would dress a certain way when she was young and she was... uh, she, she was, she, she was a, a beautiful woman. And then one day in prayer, God showed her the effect of her dress code. And then she completely changed. Completely changed. But I know most women are unaware. It does not mean, though, that because you're unaware, that God is not wanting you to be aware. He wants you to be a source of blessing not a source of, um, um, of, of temptation for, for others. You must be in the image of Mary. You must be a source of blessing. And you need to ask this question. You need to examine your conscience and ask the Lord, am I a source of blessing for men? And if not, how can I become one? How can I be in the image of Our Lady? That's a very important thing for us to do. And then men, do you bless women when you see them? And you bless them with your eyes. And you demean them with your eyes. The way you look at them is very important. You can affirm a woman by looking at her a certain way, and you can degrade her by looking at her a certain way. Are you a Saint Joseph? Pray to him so he can teach you purity. What is purity? It's to give to everything its real value. That's what purity is. And we ought to do that to one another. Yeah? All right. God bless you. And we'll say a word of prayer and we'll take some questions. Yes. Okay. So the question is, when you do a, 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 when you give a, um, when you do a donation and it's tax deductible, how is that a donation since you can deduct it from your taxes? Well, you, you, we need to recognize it's about 30%. That's the net effect. So you're not, you, the government doesn't give you back all your money. It gives you a portion of it, right? So, therefore, there are degrees of good, right? Okay. If you want to be, if, you, if you're able to do a, a sacrificial donation without anything returning to you, right, that would be the best. However, we also have to account for the reality in which people live. And... These types of things are important for them, their budget and the constraint they have around them. Hence, we'll make it a little easier on them. I remember when I was working for Catholic Answers, when, we, uh, when Catholic Answers would do a, um, a um, fundraising campaign, and we get those checks back. A lot of them were $10, $15. Uh, 
Um, sorry, I couldn't give more. That's, I, that's all I could do. So, and those were really precious uh, donations to us. It, it really hit us uh, very, very strongly because we knew people were sacrificing to do that. So if we can make it easier for them, we should. Now, those who can bypass the whole thing, wonderful. But I would not want to lay that burden on anybody. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. Being able to give anonymous donation without any return, any recognition, is the ultimate. Absolutely. That's a wonderful thing. But for a lot of people, you have to rec- we have to recognize also, for a lot of people who live with certain constraints, it's means for them to be able to give. And we have to understand also that in the United States, it is based on this principle of subsidiarity, which the church be- believes. So the, 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 the government is not doing this just because they, are, they, you know, they love us. They do this because they know a lot of good can come out of it. Right? So that, that, that's why. Otherwise, if this was not happening, then the government would have to take on all these activities, and that will be done not necessarily in the best possible way, and it will cost a lot more. So overall, it is a good. Okay. Yes. Otherwise, the church would not be engaged in it. Yeah. Fatty? As I said, even when it is not anonymous, it is still a real sacrifice. So let, let, let's be careful here and not overly judge those who are relying on this mechanism because even with that, they have, it's a true sacrifice for them to go through this. It is not easy. No, I just you understand? Like I the yes. It is the best possible form if it can be done. For a lot of people, they cannot do it this way. But even with that, we need to recognize it is still a sacrifice. Yes. How do I know if I'm celebrating the liturgy properly? Just follow the rubric. Do what the rubric asks you to do. And learn about the liturgy. Why do we sign ourselves with holy water when I enter the, the church? Why do we kneel? What is the priest doing? Uh, the architecture. Just learn more about it because that's an act of love towards God. And it's an act of sacrificial love because for most of you, learning about church architecture is not part of your line of business or maybe your most important thing or pressing thing you want to learn. So it's an act of love. You're spending time Devoting yourself to the Mass. Wonderful. That's what God hopes we will do on our own. These little things. Just follow the rubric. When you stand in the Mass, have your hands folded. Right. Focus only on the altar. Neither looking right nor left. Don't worry about what your neighbors are doing. And prepare yourself before coming to Mass. Come to Mass a little earlier so you can have time to be ready. Celebrate the Mass with devotion and love. And understand you're giving a thanksgiving. You're there to thank God, to glorify Him. Not necessarily to receive something. So it doesn't matter how you feel, whether you're distracted or not. It's your act of will God is looking for. Offer Him your week. Join your prayers of the whole week with it. Make sure when you come to Mass, your hands are not empty. Right? You've done something during the week for the Mass. You have something to offer. So suddenly your entire week now is wrapped into, your ma- into Mass. So that's how you grow. Yeah? You see, that's a very good question. If they're not supposed to raise their arms and they do it, why is the priest not saying it? We have a false idea about priesthood. We equate priests with CTOs, CEOs, policemen. They're none of that. The priests are not more responsible for the liturgy than we are. We share equal responsibility. Some priests will say it, some 
even when they say it, will face people who harden their hearts and who cause a scandal and cause a bigger deal. Some priests have bigger issues to deal with than that. Right? Um, for instance, proper clothing in Mass. Right? There's a lot that could be said and done about the Mass. But at the end of the day, it is not the priest's responsibility to teach the people about how to celebrate the Mass. It is the people's responsibility to learn what they need to know. Right? So it, the priest should not be telling parents how to dress their kids. You see, it's incongruous to even think this way. So why should, we, why should he be telling adults how to behave in Mass? Now, the liturgy, I mean, the, the homily should be about that from time to time. They should be talking about this. They should, but at the end of the day, it is really our responsibility. Right? That's why. I mean, I just think of him as the shepherd. Yes. The sheep, so yes. Can... Correct. But the shepherd and his sheep relationship is really in terms of obedience to the Lord. But he also says that now, St. Peter tells us, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You do not need teachers. <clears throat> Meaning, the Holy Spirit will teach you in everything. That means we have so many resources available to us. If we but applied ourselves, and our love was uh, deep enough then we would reform the way we celebrate the liturgy and all of us would be doing it the right way. So it, it goes deep. That's why for the priest it's so hard because he's not, okay, he can be there and tell them do this and don't do that. For instance, the veil. Perfect example. The veil. When I start talking about whether you should put a veil or not, the conversation turned into a legal battle. Right? The Code of Canon Law of 19, of 2000 and whatever dropped it. But the Code of Canon Law of this and that year didn't. And the reason why it was dropped was because of this. Therefore, we don't have to... But Pope Leo XVI said, okay, we missed the conversation. I'm not saying to women, put a veil on your head for legal reasons. If that's how you feel, even if you put the veil on your head, it's, it's not going to serve you. It's not going to do you any good. It's a question of the heart. Right? This veil is connected to the heart. It's a great act of humility. It's an act of love. It's an act of submission. I mean, so much, is exp- so much theology is expressed in that. But I know it's really difficult for women to understand this. I cannot force it on them. Right? You heard me say this before. I'm absolutely convinced that the, the many women's spiritual life is stunted. They're prevented to grow in their spiritual life because they wear pants. I know for many of you it sounds completely ludicrous and uh, ridiculous. And, and why are you, what, you hear me? Many women really re- react strongly to when they hear me say that. But putting on men's clothing affects your femininity. femininity. It affects the way you think about yourselves as women. And therefore the way you worship is affected. Okay, what am I going to do? Let's say if I was a priest. I'm going to force them. What's the point? If I force them, I lose them. They don't get it. There's something far deeper than my words going on here. That's the problem that the priest confronts. Confronted with. Yes, we're dealing with sinful people. We're all in the same boat. The problem for the priest is he's not here as an enforcer of the law. Because even if he enforced the law, he'd lose the people. Yeah, so maybe... If, I mean, he's dealing with people who are not catechized, people who come into the church for the first, have no idea what they're doing. 
we have a crisis on our hands because we lay folks who like to blame the priests, we are the ones who drop the ball. I'm not talking about you as a convert. I'm saying those of us who grew up in the church, we're the ones who drop the ball. We have to pick it up. And we have to run with it. Yes. Exactly. That's another really good point. The church is a ministry of mercy. Justice is reserved to the Lord. So, for instance, when you go to confession, and, I don't know, you confess to the Lord that you just killed a herd of pigs. You destroyed property. You did something serious. And he gives you a rosary to say. You think, is that it? Just give me a rosary? Or two Hail Marys and two Our Father. You think you deserve a beating, right? So you feel about it. The priest doesn't have to worry about it. Because he's doing what is in his judgment. But whatever punishment is still lacking will be taken care of by the Lord. So if you really think about it, at the end of the day, the Lord who is in charge of all of this has people in church for blessing, for salvation, and he has people in church for cursing and for damnation. Just as we read right now. This is hard for us to understand. We would much rather have, you know, the God that only blesses and that's it, right? But that's not how it works. You have to see it in the eyes of Jesus. Judas was his disciple. You understand? So, most important thing for us, back to your question, is your virtues. Never mind anything else. You know that your mass is fruitful if you're growing in virtues. And how will you know that? Yes, your wife. She'll, she, he, she, but, but, but going to church every day is good, but if there's no growth in virtue, it's useless. That's the key. That's the fruits. That's how you know there is real spiritual growth. When the ones who know you best say, hmm, you changed. You used to smoke, or you used to chew, chew gum, or you used to this, and that, and that. You don't do that anymore. You know there's a growth in virtue. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Okay, very good question. Is it an act of mercy when we say to someone they're doing something wrong? It can be an act of mercy if they're receptive to it. And it's actually a judgment when they rebel. I'll give you an example. I, had a, I have a good friend of mine who went to Mass once. I don't mean he just went once. He was at Mass that day in this church. And the procession went through. And the one who was carrying the, God, the, the, the Bible, or the, the, the lectionary, I'm sorry, was a young woman, a rather pretty young woman, who was dressed in a miniskirt. And she was going down the aisle, holding the lectionary high up. I don't need to paint you a picture. The priest was right behind her, going down the aisle. After Mass thinking he was doing the right thing. He went to her and he said, very gently, very gently, I want to let you know that the way you dress is not appropriate because you can be a near occasion of sin for others. How did she react? She burst in tears and was indignant. Her parents heard him speak to their daughters this way and they were scandalized. The priest told him to apologize, and he ended up writing a letter of apology to her and her parents. That is condemnation. That tells you the hardness of heart is so great that she cannot even hear it. Back to my point, many people cannot even hear it because of the hardness of heart. Yes, but not her. God will reward him because he tried, 
Not her. No. No graces will be given. No graces will be given. God will not be mocked. Pardon? But she didn't. She completely refused the correction. Yes. Very good. Yes. I understand. And there is actually a parable that Jesus gives precisely along that. When he has two sons. Father has two sons. There's the first one. Go do this. And he says, yes, Father. And he doesn't do it. And he says the same. And the second son says, no, I won't. And he does it. Right? Both are at fault. Both have imperfect behavior. But at least the second one listened. Right? Agreed. I am not trying to judge her. I'm trying to tell you, because I know this lasted for some weeks. And they never changed their position during those weeks. They stayed where they were. Now, maybe later things will change. Right? But when you see it happening, and there's a hardness of heart, that is not just a pure um, reaction of the moment. Right? But it sticks. And it stays. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Yeah. But I'm not... I'm, yeah. Yes. So I am not, you know, it's not our job to condemn anybody to anything. So I'm not saying, you know, where this girl is going to end. I have no idea. We pray for her. But what I'm saying is that if I look at the act itself, right, what caused her to react this way? It is pride, it is sin, and it is guilt mixed together. She didn't have the right level of humility to accept correction. Or at the very least, to hear what he had to say and then decide one way or the other. Yes? No. So the question is, later on, the kingdom will be broken into north and south. The northern kingdom is known as the kingdom of Israel, including ten tribes except two. The, two southern, the, the, kingdom, the southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah with the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Reuben and all the other ones are up north. My point is that these, the, Reuben was part of these ten tribes, and they were lost too. So, back to your question, no, the trouble did not end here. As you can see, it continued because Reuben was one of the tribes who decided to break away from Judea. Is that, does this make sense? Yeah, no, it continued. There's always a sense, we should be in control, not you. Make sense? No, you're right. When he healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, she was not present. And likewise, when he healed the son of the man, the centurion, who came to him asking for healing, that man was not present. That is Jesus. No. So likewise, um, Jesus never exorcised. Jesus did not perform exorcisms. Right? No, no, no. You don't have to be present at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So uh, Jesus did not exercise. He commanded and it happened. A priest has to go through a rite of exorcism. So we don't have the same powers as Jesus. We don't forgive sins. So even when the priest in the, in, in, um, in the confessional, the priest has no power. He's not able to forgive your sins. But because he stands in the person of Christ, that through him, Christ exercised his powers. You understand? There is no fundamental reason to say that incense is only a priestly function. Um, burning incense at home, I, I have never heard it said, let me put it to you this way. I have to go and look at it and research this a little bit more, but I don't think anywhere in the Code of Canon Law it says that lay, lay folks are not allowed to burn incense at home when they're praying. I'll check and make sure that that is the case. That's my, let me get back to you on this one. But I, I don't think it's, a, uh, it's reserved only for 
Now, certain things are obviously reserved for the, for the church. You can't go home and, um, you know, say, I'm going to celebrate the Eucharist. It's not going to happen, right? And usually, you can, but it's not recommended. The liturgy must be celebrated in a holy place, in a place consecrated for prayers. I just said it. It's, the liturgy should be celebrated only in a consecrated place, which is the church. As I said, the norm is celebrate liturgy in the church. Even outdoor masses, even outdoor masses are not appropriate unless you have so many people that the church cannot contain them. In that case, the law of charity applies. Now maybe in specific cases, the law of charity would apply because of what happens at home. It is possible. And I know some priests who do celebrate masses in homes. But it's not the norm. It's not supposed to happen. And we certainly should not think of it as equivalent to celebrating the liturgy in the church. Okay? Yeah. Yes, it is the code of canon law. The code of canon law. It is permissible for a layperson to expose the blessed sacrament if there are no priests around. I, I, I don't want to... Look, do not come to me as if I'm a judge or I'm the one who's going to tell you whether a situation is right. That's not my job. I'm not going to do that. But I can tell you what the church wants us to do. That I can do. What the church wants us to do is that these situations will happen when you can expose the blessed sacrament when there are no priests around. Why? Because it is a far greater good to have Jesus exposed than not. So we, the church is here. You can have a layperson do that. When there is no priest around, because it's a much greater good to have Jesus. If there's a deacon there, a deacon should do it. Assume there is no deacon and there is no priest. The code of canon law, the rubric, the church is very specific, usually, on what should be done, what should not be done. Right? Now, in that case, you might say there are so many people who want to go to confession... Maybe the time the priest had was limited. And in that case, hearing confession is a greater good because you're forgiving sins. And that's why they did it this way. Maybe it's possible. Right? I don't know. So God will, will use that situation. But it doesn't mean He wants us not to follow the, the, the rules of the church. Even Our Lady, Mary Most Holy, waited for the church to declare the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, she waited 1,800 years before she used it herself. That tells you how important the church is to our Lord. Yeah? Okay. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.